It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here in Colorado Springs. And I am so excited that you are tuning in today. Today we celebrate the most wonderful day of the year, I I think, quite frankly. This is Resurrection Sunday. And almost 2,000 years ago, God's plan of redemption altered the world forever. The power of sin and death was broken through the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Death was defeated. Now, today I'm going to be giving a message in brief called This is Love. Let me remind you from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 what we are told about agape love. Listen to these words. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 4 to 8 and verse 13. We read, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So let me just tell you in brief of the greatest love story, the story of a God who so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life, according to John 3, 16. Now, all four Gospels record the events of Jesus's crucifixion, death, and resurrection. And even today, the proof is undeniable. Jesus said that he would be in the earth for three days and three nights in Matthew chapter 19, verses 39 to 42, and that they would tear him down as a temple, but after three days, he would rebuild it, according to John 2, 19 and Mark 14, 58. Now, the word excruciating originates from the crucifixion. You see, the Romans were experts in punishing and torturing men. In fact, the pain would be so great that we will hear the words of Christ felt a thousand years before he died in the book of Psalm, chapter 22, verses 1 to 18. Here's what we read. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You'll notice there in verse 6 that I just read that Jesus called himself a worm. And the Hebrew word for worm there is tola, and it refers to a special type of worm, a particular type of worm. It's known as the coccus elysis, also known as the scarlet worm. And that worm was used to make scarlet dye because it crawls up on a tree, lays its eggs, and dies to give life to the eggs. 
So the blood then covers all of its eggs, and this red blood becomes dye that is used to make royalty garments such as robes. Now, after they beat him, they stripped the skin from his body. They mocked him. They spit on him. They drove a crown of thorns into his skull, and then they crucified him, all recorded in Matthew chapter 27, 26 to 31, and Mark 15, 16 to 20. And they nailed him to a cross next to two robbers, just as it was prophesied that they would do, Isaiah 53, 12. Now, scientists tell us that 60 to 88 pounds is the max that the hand can support with a nail in it, holding up the body against a cross. Now, recent studies show that someone can be suspended then in this T position on a cross and support their body if the nail is placed in the wrist. But is that although that may seem plausible, Given the text that we read in John chapter 20, verse 27, it appears that Jesus was indeed nailed through the hands. Here's what we read. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now, the Greek word for hand used both for Jesus's hand and Thomas's hand in this text is keri, which means hand. But it can also imply wrist, but there is another Greek word for wrist, which is karpas in the Greek language. And karpas would be the base of the arm that connects the the hand, if you will, to the base of the arm. And this is a word that we see with with, uh, relation to Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, for example, where there was a winnowing fork placed within the hand for the threshing floor to gather wheat. And Jesus will use this as he describes even the hand that causes you to sin in Matthew chapter 5, verse 30, and that Jesus would even reach out his hands to point to his disciples in Matthew chapter 14, 31. This particular word is used 177 times to illustrate a hand specifically, not the wrist. And Luke, who was a physician, also uses the same description in Luke chapter 24, verse 39. Now, it's interesting that we don't question the word for foot, uh, podos, which is used 55 times in the New Testament, but we question whether or not he was actually nailed in his hand or his wrist, because in Matthew chapter 22, verse 13, for example, it, it is described as someone being bound both hand and foot and tossed out of the Lord's presence, which would imply that the wrist is involved there. So in this particular context of John chapter 20 and Luke 24, Jesus was specifically wanting attention to his hand for a reason. And if that's the case, what I often find myself doing is in looking elsewhere in Scripture to find out why. Because in what I believe that is, is quite clear here is if we go back to Isaiah chapter 49, in this 49th chapter of Isaiah, we read of the Lord's plan to restore the earth as the Redeemer. We read of His faithfulness, that he is faithful and true, that he won't forget us. And then in Isaiah 49, 16, we read, see, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. And this was translated from the Hebrew, which is kapayim, and it specifically means the flat part of the hand. So obviously this cannot be the wrist. The only reason he allowed those men, I believe, to drive nails into his hands was out of obedience to redeem the very names upon his hands, your name 
and my name. And he said he could have called his father to dispatch 12 legions of angels if he had wanted to. And if you do the math, that's 60,000 angels to come to his aid in Matthew 26, 53. And we know that one angel took out 185,000 men in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35. So here he says, my father could have sent 12 legions of angels, i.e. 60,000 of them, but he chose to be nailed to a cross through his very hands, the very hands that are mentioned 122 times in Scripture, for our salvation. Now, why then should we correlate that, this, this reading here in Isaiah 49, as though it may be implied here for this moment where he was crucified? I believe it's because Isaiah 49 contains seven prophecies of Jesus Christ, and Isaiah, as a book with 66 chapters, contains 125 prophecies of Jesus Christ, more than any other book in the Bible. And you probably should note that the oldest existing manuscript in the world today is the book of Isaiah, dated to around 100 to 350 BC. So you say, well, if he wanted to draw our attention to his hands and attribute that specifically as a fulfillment of scripture, what about his side? Was there a reason why he wanted him to see the side as well? And I say, great question to that, because indeed he did. It was prophesied about his side in Psalm twenty-two, fourteen. His hands being pierced, these were prophesied in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, and even his feet was prophesied in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. So if we if he had to be pierced in his hands then how do we account for his body weight? That's the big question then. Ropes, I I suspect, were used in this to suspend his arms up. So why then drive nails into his hands? The nails, I believe, were a, a part of the process to ensure a faster death, making it more difficult for him to lift up on his his forearms to breathe. Because you have to remember, those who clamored for his death wanted him in the grave before the, the sun went down, before the twelfth hour. Here's what we read in John chapter 19, 31 to 37. He says, Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So here we see them trying to expedite their death. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. This is Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierce. Now, Dr. William Edwards, who was with the Journal of the American Medical Association, stated, clearly, the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound in his side was inflicted. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with all modern medical knowledge. And they placed Jesus then in the tomb. He was wrapped in roughly 70 pounds of tightly wound grave clothes, a huge boulder then placed in the front of the tomb with armed Roman guards stationed at the entrance. And this was still 
not enough to hold Jesus down. You see, when the tomb was rolled away, it wasn't just a small push. That These particular stones that, that, these, that would cover these tombs would often sit at an angle to remain in place. And, and then we see that a seal was placed over the stone by the Romans to indicate that no man was to attempt to pull back that stone, according to Matthew 27, 62 to 66. Now, the stone without gravity could have weighed some one to two tons, i.e. 4,000 pounds, and that would have required several men to push and pull the stones simultaneously uphill against gravity. However, it doesn't end there. Not only did they place a seal on the tomb, many suspect, and this is often a subject of great debate, were there one or even two metal stakes driven into the stone by the Roman guards? That modification would have even made it more difficult, requiring some 70 tons of pressure to shear off those metal stakes, i.e. 140,000 pounds of pressure. Now, you have to remember that the interesting thing about the stone being rolled away was that it was the benefit of the testimony. Christ had already been resurrected and the angel was opening the door to reveal the evidence according to Matthew chapter 28 verse 2. So you see Satan threw his best punch at Jesus and our champion rose again and said, you may bruise my heel, but I will crush your head, according to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and crush the head of Satan he did. The name of Calvary is derived from the Latin word of skull, Calvarius, and that location as the skull is mentioned in all four biblical accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, using this particular Greek word, cranion, and in all three accounts, the name is actually given as Golgotha, which is translated from the Aramaic, and it means the skull or the place of the skull. And the crushing of Satan's head is our first clue as to why Jesus was crucified on Calvary, the place of the skull. Moses had prophetically written that there would come a time when the future seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Now, if we go to 1 Samuel chapter 17, we read about David's battle with Goliath of Gath, and afterward, David, after he'd slain the giant, he cuts the head off and takes it to Jerusalem. And the fact that David brought Goliath's head to Jerusalem is quite astonishing, since the fact that Jerusalem at that time was inhabited by David's enemies, the Jebusites. So the question becomes, where did David place the head of Goliath? The scripture doesn't tell us. But I think it wouldn't be going too far out on a limb to perhaps suggest that the giant skull was buried at Calvary approximately 1,050 years before Christ would give his life on that cross. Why? Because the significance of being crucified on Calvary, the place of the skull, was to show his victory over his enemy Satan, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And as the nail was driven through his heels on Calvary, as he was being crucified, the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 was being partially fulfilled because this was bruising his heel, if you will. And the remainder of the prophecy was fulfilled as Jesus was lifted above the ground, that place of the skull, crushing the head of Satan. Jesus was literally in a position over his enemies, over the giants of evil, and Christ's death and resurrection would seal the demise of Satan and all of his followers. See, Jesus Christ predetermined his death. 
You go back to Acts chapter 4, verse 28 on that, Acts 4, 28. In fact, he fulfilled 44 key prophecies with his life, death, and resurrection, and he completed 355 prophecies specifically. If you want those, you can get those from me. Write me at calvaryfountain.com. Just visit the website there. You'll see our email address. I will send you all 355 prophecies. He fulfilled every one of them. The only thing left to be fulfilled is his second coming, and that's alluded to 300 times in the New Testament. So, did you know that before that the Bible tells us that the Messiah had to come before the temple was destroyed? I don't know if you realize that or not. But the Bible is quite specific of when Jesus had to come. See, this would automatically remove the argument that that the Messiah hasn't come yet. No, no, the scripture is quite clear. The Messiah had to come before the temple was destroyed. You go to Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 to 27. You can also look to Micah chapter 3 and 5 and even Psalm 118, 26. So, in fact, we were given in Daniel chapter 9 a timeline of 483 years from the decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem and when the second temple would start to be built. And that would bring us to exactly 30 AD. So we have this 483-year count that takes us all the way to 30 AD, and that corresponds exactly when Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling another prophecy— Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And I believe that Jesus did die in 30 AD, not 33. Uh, If you look at the math there, he serves as a ministry of some three years. He's probably born around 4 BC. And if we realize that there isn't a year zero and that the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, that would put it exactly 40 years apart from what Jesus Christ would give him his life on the cross. Forty years later, the prophecy is fulfilled of the temple being destroyed, the second temple, and the the city of Jerusalem, and the number 40 has always come to symbolize completion of a cycle of judgment, cleansing, and restoration, and that number is mentioned 146 times in the Bible. And if we do the math on how many feasts that Jesus participated in, we see that there's at least three, one in John chapter 2, John chapter 6, and John chapter 11. So that would imply perhaps a three-year ministry. But Jesus didn't stay dead. Oh no, he rose again, and he defeated the bonds of death once and for all, that all may live. And the Bible reports that Jesus appeared not just to a couple of folks, but to hundreds of people during that 40 days that he was alive and with us after his resurrection, before he ascended into heaven. So after his resurrection, each of them told of the stories and testified to the resurrected Savior. He appeared to two men walking to the village of Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. He appeared to the 12 disciples and and these weren't just guys who were you know waiting for him to be resurrected. They couldn't believe their eyes. He even had to say to them, "Why do you doubt who I am? Look at my hands and my feet." In Luke chapter twenty four thirty eight to thirty nine, he was saying, "You see that it's really me." In fact, let's just read it. Verse thirty nine. It says of Luke chapter twenty four, "Behold my hands and my feet." that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And the most convincing report of Jesus' post-resurrection appears by what we're told by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8. Listen to this. For I delivered to you, first of all, which I also received, that Christ died 
for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as my one born out of due time. Now, Paul is saying that the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't just happen in a corner somewhere. Large numbers of people saw him alive in different locations at different times and in different circumstances over a 40-day period. In fact, the tombs themselves were opened and dead people were coming to life declaring that the Lord Jesus reigns. Listen to this in Matthew chapter 27 verses 50 to 54. It says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and then the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, Lee Strobel, who gives us the case for Easter, he points out that if every person in the Bible that were identified as eyewitnesses of his resurrection were called to a witness stand to be cross-examined, it would take 129 hours to hear all the testimonies if you only gave each person only 15 minutes. In other words, It would take from breakfast on Monday until Friday at dinner, listening around the clock to all of the eyewitness accounts. And the resurrection changed everything. At the cross, Jesus died in the place of us for our sins. Jesus entered into our pain and our shame. Jesus came and took the weight of sin itself so that its power could be broken. And because Jesus didn't stay in the grave, we see that death of this death of Jesus Christ is as God, is his love that is freeing us from sin and God in his love overcoming death and God in his love announcing that one day a new creation will come. And so because of the death and resurrection, of Jesus, we see the love of God. We see, we look at Jesus and we see this is love. And, and sin is not a popular word today. Actually, sin can be a confusing word. So let me just tell you a brief story here in a few minutes that we have left together. Listen, I've got a lot of children who give me a number of illustrations, but I don't want to give you one here today. I've used them enough times. So let me just share with you what another pastor shared with me about a similar circumstance you probably can relate with. He told me that he woke up and he heard this crash, and not a loud crash, but a crash nonetheless. And before he could peel himself out of bed, he heard the pitter-patter of little feet running around upstairs. And then he hears it, Dad! He hears from his five-year-old in this sweet, little, innocent voice. He says, will you help us make breakfast? And he's saying, well, sure, yeah, but wait a minute, what just happened now? He says groggily. You can imagine as he's just waking up and hearing this. And he says, the child says, well, we were starving, and so we tried to make ourselves some oatmeal. 
And he guessed the rest. He, they're named Jane, the older sister of this younger brother, Jonas. They had successfully gotten into oatmeal and poured it into a bowl and filled it with water, but then had poured it, put it in the microwave, but they had misjudged how hot the bowl would be. And so when they pulled it out of the microwave with this hot oatmeal, they dropped the bowl, which is a normal human reflex to do. And of course, you have oatmeal all over the kitchen. He said, I wasn't mad about the bowl. I know that it crashed, it's broken, it's inexpensive, but but I was still puzzled. He says, they tried to clean up the mess of all this oatmeal by themselves with all the broken pieces of glass all around. They grabbed the mop and they used the mop, dry mop, mind you, to try to clean up all this oatmeal. So now they've ruined the mop. They've ruined the bowl. The mess is spread around all over the kitchen. And he looks at them. He says, why didn't you guys just ask for help? I, I would have come and helped you clean this up. And before they were, could respond, the answer was apparent. It was hard enough for them to ask for help, and it it was even harder for them to ask to help clean up the mess that they made while trying to clean up the original mess. So it, it, this is a lot like we are as adults, isn't it? it we don't want to ask God for help. We, we want to try to do it on our own, and then we make matters worse as we take it into our own hands. And when the mess ensues, we resist asking for help again, and this time because we're embarrassed or ashamed. And so asking for help then results in a bigger mess than all we had to do was simply admit that we were at fault, and we don't want to admit that, because guilt is an uncomfortable feeling, and saying sorry is an uncomfortable word. We'd rather deny it, ignore it, recover on our own, or even just justify it away, rather than just simply admitting that we were wrong. And here's the reality, it doesn't go away. The feeling that we've fallen short, that we've failed, it eats away at us. And our culture doesn't really have a word for this. They tend to psychoanalyze it all and, and try to define all of our shortcomings perhaps as the fault of another, the fault of our parents, fault of our community, our, our poor education. It's somebody else's fault. But in the end, the Bible has a word for this. It's called sin. And sin is a sense of missing the mark or falling short of who God created us to be. It's falling short of our original vocation. The first calling to be God's image bearers who reflect God's wisdom and love and light into this dark world. And sin is also rebellion, turning away from God, a decision to move against him or independent of him. Sin is transgression of the law, a crossing of lines and boundaries, a violation of God's commands. And ultimately, sin is a power. It is sin with a capital S that holds us captive and paralyzes us with shame. And we take it all together, and we realize that it's all a dead end. It's a grand game over. And what do we do with that? There, there was a follower of Jesus named Peter who denied him three times. And Jesus met him where he was to restore him. It's a powerful story of redemption that the one who denied the Lord Jesus would be restored by him, put back into action in service to him. And he does this for us every day. There is good news. That's what the gospel is all about. It's not over. The resurrection changed everything. He is coming to us to restore us. God demonstrated his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he tells us in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a love that's indescribable, and it changed everything, and it can change your life. It certainly has changed mine. We have been freed 
from the shackles of sin to serve our Lord Jesus Christ and looking eagerly for his return. I hope you are blessed this Resurrection Sunday. Be encouraged and join us, if you will, if you don't have a a church to call your own. Come and visit us at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. Our service is at 10 a.m. this Sunday morning. We're going to be talking about this very thing that I've just shared with you of Resurrection Sunday. And it is a joyous celebration. We're giving away little wooden crosses. That's our gift to you. But more importantly, we want to give you the love of Jesus. And we want you to feel like a family. You're not a number at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. So again, learn more at calvaryfountain.com. Again, calvaryfountain.com. God bless you, and we'll see you there.